you have your Bibles, please turn to John 17. And Chris will be focusing on Jesus' prayer in this passage, praying for unity, the unity of his people. So John 17, reading from verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and have not, and have not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction." that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfect, perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for Chris and for ourselves as we listen to his word being explained. Father, we thank you for this precious portion of the scriptures. We thank you that your son is so concerned about us, your people, that he prays for us. He intercedes on our behalf. And he prays for the things that are most precious and dear to him. Father, we pray, heed not just our prayers, but heed the prayers of your Son, that we indeed may be one. And Father, we pray for our brother Chris as he brings your word to us. May you bless his preparation. May you bless his delivery. And may you bless us, those who hear. May our hearts be receptive and open to the things that you have laid upon his heart that we desperately need to hear and apply in our lives. We pray also for the children who are gathered in various classes and we pray that your word being taught to them would also be blessed richly by your grace. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I don't know when they invented this lectern, whether they realised that someone could be so short as me, but it's easy to read. Um, I've got some spare notes if anyone wants. I'll keep on the front here. Uh, I don't know if you've got notes. Our topic is unity. My uh, section is the priority of unity, or uh, I, I put it as the theory of unity. Um, I, was, I dreaded it when Mike, I think, chose our topic. Uh, because I think I'm pretty hopeless at this topic, to be honest. But uh, as I started preparing, uh, I only not only realized how hopeless I am, but uh, just how difficult the topic is. And I kept on being drawn to this passage in John 17. And so uh, I don't think any passage has kept me awake at night as much as this. Uh, let us pray one more time, and then we'll uh, try to get into it, and I'll have a go doing my best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need help, and we do ask you that you would be with us. We pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to be with me, to help explain this simply, and for each one of us to hear well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our passage today is a prayer. You would have picked that up as it was read to us. Uh, Jesus is praying to his Heavenly Father, and uh, at the time when Jesus is praying, we're told in the very first verse is the hour. And look at verse 1, Father, the hour has come. And Jesus uh, was speaking, obviously, about the cross. He's speaking about the fact that he's about time to go now to the cross. This is the work he was sent to do. This was the saving work that was his main purpose for coming on earth. And he's come right upon this time. And just before he does that, he prays. And it's this prayer that he prays. And the prayer is generally divided into three sections by uh, most uh, commentators. 
uh, verses 1 to 5, he's praying for himself. Uh, verses 6 to 19, he's praying for his immediate disciples. A and then uh, 20 to 26, the verses that we will focus on, are for all Christians to come after uh, until the end of time. A and so, just from verses 20 to 26, you should be comforted that Jesus prayed for you and for me. Uh, it's a wonderful thought that before he went to the cross, he actually had you and I on his mind. A and when we come to such a text, uh, we, we realize he's got limited time. He he's got all the pressure of having to make sure he goes and does the work, this, this painful and humiliating work that God's given him. And in the midst of this, what does he pray for? Well, he prays for us. A and the critical prayer requests that come out of these verses are worth focusing on. A and I think we could have just done the whole conference just on this passage, quite frankly. Uh, but, but in this limited time, we're going to look under three headings. Uh, something about what is said in verses 20 to 26. So if you've got your Bibles open in John 17, I'll read them again just to remind us what Jesus said. And then we'll look at the three points. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you, love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Uh, incredible words, and the first point I'd like to pick up is that in our unity, um, we are to be united to glorify God. And before we come to just verses 20 to 26, if we look at the initial part of the passage, the first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself. And some of the things he prays for himself are really worth looking at. His goal, he prays in, in, in essence, is that he would glorify God. If you noticed in the whole chapter, that word glorify, giving glory, those themes came up over and over again. Uh, in simple terms, he just wanted to do a good job for God as he went to the cross. He wanted to make sure he definitely went from this time of prayer right all the way to the cross and then to his resurrection after that. He wanted to bring the greatest honor to God in this incredible work that he did. And in the process, Jesus asked God to glorify him. And I suspect here he was speaking about the resurrection he was probably also speaking about his exaltation into heaven. But, but Jesus sought honor for himself. It's unbelievable that a human, a man, 
would actually say he wants the same glory that's attributed to God. And here we see the, the deity and the humanity of Christ. This dependent Jesus calling on God to glorify himself. And even as he's glorifying himself, his goal is that the glory that would come to him would actually glorify his Father. Look at verse 1. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Uh, Jesus is dependent on the Father, but at the same time he acknowledges that he has all authority over all flesh. And, and with this authority, what does he do? He gives eternal life. He gives eternal life to all those whom the Father has given him. Once again, look at verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. We're Christians today because God gave us as a gift to his son. We're Christians today because Jesus exercised that incredible authority of his, the authority over all flesh, to ensure that you and I would have eternal life. God determined from the beginning of time that our receiving of the gospel, our believing in the truth and the salvation, saving work of Jesus would actually glorify and honor him the most. It honors the Son and it honors the Father. Jesus' job description was to come and save a people to God. And this is the work that brings the most glory to God. Look at verse 4. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Uh, if you read this prayer over and over again, you will not be left with any doubt as to the fact that Jesus' major prayer point, his biggest prayer concern, is the glory of God. His obsession, if you like, his priority is God's glory. And to him, God is just so, so glorious. He just cannot get past that. That's what he really wants to do. He, he can remember, I suspect, the incredible power of God, the, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. It, he's got all power, all wisdom, all knowledge. His morality is perfect. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's gracious. And so when Jesus is praying for God to be glorified, he's not speaking about improving himself or improving God. He's speaking about revealing that glory to men, that, that men might pay attention to God, that men may honor God, and that men may know God. And he goes on and he says that actually knowing God is eternal life. Carson puts it this way. He says, eternal life is not so much everlasting life. It is more about personally knowing the everlasting God. And so this knowledge of God, what does it do? Well, it divides the whole human race into two groups. There's this one group on this side who know God. And there's this other group on this side who are the world. There's this one group on one side who see and appreciate God's saving work and His incredible glory in His Son. And there's this other group, which are the world, who reject it and oppose God. And, and have no interest in, in the saving work of Jesus. And, and so Jesus then focuses his prayer, not on this group here, not on the world. He, his focus of his prayer is only 
and quite deliberately on just those whom God has given him. Those whom the Father have given him is whom he prays for. Imagine if our prayer meetings were like that. Imagine if we prayed totally consumed about the glory of God and about his purposes and his saving purposes on earth. But when we get to verse 20, when we get to verses 20 to 26, which is our our text, uh, we see that this priority for God's glory hasn't changed. He is praying for us, but his priority for God's glory just continues. He does not pray for missionary boards. He does not pray for our church outreach programs. He does not pray for our governments or the legislation that they're going to pass. He doesn't even pray for our illnesses or our jobs or our houses or our marriages or anything like that. Uh, His prayer, all these things should be prayed for and all these things uh, we, we should be dependent on God for. Most certainly they have their place. But when we come to Jesus' prayer about us as Christians, look at verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not pray for these, and these are the disciples. So he says, I do not pray for the disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now the big question is, what did Jesus' prayer request mean? Uh, It's a simple prayer request, isn't it? He wants us to be united. But what does it mean to be united? And so I'll give you a couple of thoughts from a few people, and I'll bring it together by the end of this first point. But, But Leon Morris says, Jesus did not mean that the unity between the Father and the Son is the same as the unity between believers and God. In other words, it's not totally identical. We cannot have exactly the same relationship that Jesus has with the Father. But it does mean that there is an analogy. In other words, we can look at this relationship and see that we should know something of it. He he goes on, Leon Morris, he says this. He says, The Father and the Son do not lose their identity. They have a difference in function as well. But yet they are perfectly one. We go to that other source, which I love going to, is the Oxford Dictionary. Uh, And and if you go to the Oxford Dictionary, it says this about unity. It says, the state of being joined as a whole. And then you go to the verb, to unite. It says, to bring together for a common purpose or action. And these definitions make sense with all that we've read in this prayer, really. Because what, what we've read is that the Father gave the Son from the foundation of this world the father gave the son a people and he gave them a people and he wants this group of people to come together with the father and the son jesus himself gives this group of people who the father gave him eternal life and he he gives them eternal life and then they're brought together with one another and they're brought together with the son and they're brought together with the son and the father And they're brought all together for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to bring glory to God and God alone. I I met with a non-Christian this week, and he he said, it really cheeses me off that this God of the Bible is so self-obsessed. He just wants all the glory for himself. And he said, can you give me an explanation why so much glory has to be given to God? 
and he was probably expecting something really profound. And I couldn't think of anything because I'd only just prepared this. I said, because it's right. And there's nothing else we can say. Jesus wants us to be joined together as a whole. He wants us to come together with a common purpose. And that one common purpose is to glorify God. Now, he then goes specific because he's saying, this is how we glorify God. And I think the first thing we can grasp from Jesus' prayer is, is that we glorify God when we receive, when we believe, and when we obey the truth that was revealed by Jesus, that was taught by Jesus, that was passed on to the disciples. And then the disciples took it and passed it on to us. And it became what I would say is the complete canon of Scripture, the Bible that we have in our hands today. And so we, we glorify God. We, we actually come together in unity when we all take up to ourselves the truth that God has revealed through Jesus. Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, that word, word, is probably there in this prayer five or six times. The concept of truth or the concept of word is there even more than five or six times. A and you see Jesus speaking about how he received the word from his Father. He speaks about how he gave the word to the disciples. He speaks about how, uh, or he prays about how the disciples need to be sanctified in the truth or in the word. He, he speaks about how the disciples keep the word. He prays that that word will be passed on to, from the disciples to future believers and that future believers will believe the word. And so most obviously and most initially the unity that we have is common agreement. It has to be common agreement, common belief and common obedience to the word that Jesus revealed. The word that Jesus passed on to not just the disciples and the apostles but then came on to us through the scriptures. And our unity should be uh, understood in terms of the word of God. Now, you come to the word. What does Jesus mean by the word? Well, you go to, uh, once again, the commentators and someone like Barnett would say when we think about our unity should be around the word, it means that our unity should only be around Jesus and what has been taught about Jesus. And he says when we're looking for unity that Jesus is praying for, it's just the unity that we all believe that Jesus is man and Jesus is God and that we understand his person. I think it's more than that. I think you, you come to someone like Simeon, for instance, another Anglican, and he would say this. He says our unity should be around the gospel. It, it should be on things like the evil of sin, the beauty of holiness, the security of believers, and then he says many other points. I, I think it should be even more than that. And I think it's going to be hard to define in this thing, so I'm going to leave it for question time if you want. You can ask Mark and Joel, or I'm sure Mark and Joel will sort it all out in their talks. But, but uh, what I will say is that we're going to see the next point, that unity should be primarily focused in local churches. And when we come to local churches, I think you'll find that local churches, by the help of the Spirit of God, have to come to the truth of receiving, believing, and obeying all the Scriptures 
And how that works is probably a difficult thing to explain. But I'm here for the theory. I'm not here for the practice, am I? And, and so when, when I come to this text, I can say most simply to you that we glorify God when we have unity around the tr truth that is revealed by Jesus in the Scriptures. And so that's the first thing. The second thing we see is that we, have, uh, we glorify God when we have unity in love for one another. When we love one another just as the Father loved the Son and as the Father loved us. Look at verse 26. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So to get started, uh, what did Jesus pray about? Well, he prayed about unity around the Scriptures, unity around the Word of God. And he prayed unity in that we love one another just as he loves us. It's the love that he has put in us. A and he prayed this for every single one of whom the Father has given to the Son. And he's praying really for a supernatural work, isn't he? He's praying for the Holy Spirit to come and open up hearts of people that they might believe on this word, that they might see this glory of the Father, that they might see this glory that belongs to the Son as it is revealed in the Bible, and that they may have a new heart of flesh that would now love exactly the way God loves them. Jesus prayed for this kind of unity in verse 21. And then in verse 23, he prays for it again. N notice verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. N now, God's not deaf. So, so why does he pray for this unity twice? Surely it's earnestness. Surely it's emphasis. Surely it's seriousness. And, and so can I put it to you that the, our priority, our priority should be to be united, to glorify to glorify God. Now the second point that we get from our text is that we're to be united as local churches. And I think this should be our focus when we're thinking about unity. I know we're at a combined church camp and we love our fellow brethren from Stanmore and Des Moines, don't we? That the focus should not be denominational unity and the focus should not be ecumenical unity. Uh, Jesus commanded his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. He then commanded them to baptize them. He then commanded them to teach these disciples everything that Jesus had taught them. And then when we come to the book of Acts and we open up the books of Acts and we start reading the book of Acts, we see the apostles obeying Jesus' commands. And many people miraculously follow Jesus when they start preaching about Jesus, when they baptize them, when they teach uh, people everything that Jesus taught and then they form themselves into local communities. These communities are called churches. Uh, the apostles then go and plant churches in many places a and they're all these little local or larger local physical communities that express this unity in the midst of a fallen world. Look at the report on J the church in Jerusalem H in Acts 2 verses 44 to 47. Uh, and just notice how Jesus' prayer is answered just in Jerusalem. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Later in Acts, we find a guy like Paul, uh, or Saul, who later his name is changed to Paul. He's actually chosen by Jesus to be an apostle. He himself probably had the only good excuse to be a lone ranger, to have nothing to do with the rest of the believers except to preach to them and keep moving on. But, but rather than that, in Acts 9, he decides he wants to join the church. He decides he wants to be united to Christians. And we're told in Acts 9.26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him uh, and did not believe that he was a disciple. And he only really got to join them when they realized he actually was a disciple. And this Paul, once having joined a church, when he starts to travel around, he starts to plant churches. And he goes around and he plants churches in Antioch, in Iconium, in Corinth, in Ephesus, Galatia, and on and on and on it goes. And some churches were scattered by persecution, but Jesus continues to bring his people together over and over again. And so when you come even later into the New Testament and you see writings by Paul and Peter and John, uh, they use word pictures to just show this unity is so important especially in this local church. Paul writing to Timothy, for instance, he says the church should be like a household. It should be like a family. Uh, Timothy is a young minister and he's probably got it in his head that his preaching's going to do the, the thing and it's got to become like a preaching center there at church. And I don't believe that's true of Timothy, by the way. But just in case, I'm using a modern, uh, if you like, scarecrow. And um, it, it wasn't a preaching center, Paul says. It's supposed to be a close-knit family that worship together. We're supposed to have leaders just as a family have leaders and, and just as a family has parents, we have leaders and just as a family has older members who teach younger members, well, older members in the church have to be teaching younger members and younger members are to be learning from older members. And then when he says that the younger members should grow up and take up responsibilities, this all sounds too much like everyone's family, doesn't it? Family values, family chores, family commitment. Peter and Paul then liken a church to a temple. A and when they liken a church to a temple, they say it's a habitation of God. It's where God especially dwells with his people. We worship him as a nation of priests. This is where we hear the word of God read, the word of God taught, and God meets with his people individually in our quiet times. We know that. But here he especially meets with his people corporately. Paul goes on and probably uses the most graphic metaphor, which is the human body. He says the church is like a human body. It's got all its different functions, but it should all work together as one unit. A united group who feel each other's joys, we feel each other's pains. A united group that use each other's gifts to serve one another. A united group that are generous and we don't hold back our gifts selfishly from serving one another because if we do, Paul actually rebukes that. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians. Let, let me just read verse 26 and see the flavor of what uh, the apostles taught. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. The church was expected to be countercultural. Division was to be part of the world, most certainly. But... but the church was to be united. Uh, we are not to follow that doggy dog culture that exists in the world. The, the world will continue to have its discord. 
And it's not just the political party, or like for us in these days, the Liberal Party, that continues to eat itself up. The, the, Jesus prayed that the church would be nothing like that. And then if you go to the other uh, Apostle John, the one I didn't speak about, you, you go to his letter, he doesn't use metaphors, but he just bluntly says, if you don't believe the truth about Jesus, and if you don't love one another, well, you're not a Christian. You don't have eternal life. And he makes that so blunt. And then Paul, when he's teaching in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, he says, God has given gifts. And he's given gifts of mainly word gifts, the apostles, pastors, teachers. He's given evangelists and he's given all these gifts. Why? Well, we're told in verses 12 and 13, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And so this is a constant theme through the whole Bible for Christians. And we've got to ask the question, well, how did that early church do it? How, when we read Acts, were they so united? And how did, say, the people at Ephesus who received this book, when they read the letter to the Ephesians, how did they go out and actually implement unity? It's so difficult for sinners to do it. How can we reflect this oneness of the Father and the Son? How can we live like a family? How can we behave like a cohesive human body? Well, I believe it comes back to Jesus' prayer again. And we find it in verse 22. When Jesus prays, he says, And the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are. Well, once again, you've got to ask the question, what does that mean? Jesus gave us his glory. He gave us a gift, and the gift is this glory. And, and what is it? But we do know what it produces. It produces oneness, doesn't it? Oneness like the Father and the Son are one. But what is the gift? Well, once again, you've got to go to the commentators because we sit there, and I was sitting there thinking, and I'm thinking, I wonder what this glory is. Well, Carson says it's the whole deposit of the Word of God. And I'm at a Reformed Baptist community, and it's probably the suicide to disagree with Carson, but I'm going to have a go. And, um, <laughs> and I tend to go with the, the, the prezies here. Leon Morris says this. He says, Jesus' glory was in his lowly service culminating in the cross. And he says that really, it's much like what Paul taught in Philippians, when he says Jesus really brought most glory to God when he actually went to the cross. And so he says that, Paul writes to the Philippians, he says to us, he says, and the Philippians, I suppose, primarily, you should have the same mind as Jesus Christ. And that's the message to us. We should have that same humility as Jesus. Even though, in essence, he's God, yet he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became man. And Jesus portrayed this incredible glory when he comes in the appearance of, as a man. He humbles himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death of the cross is Philippians 2.8. And I think this is Jesus' glory. And I think this is the glory he gives to his, his elect, his, the people that God has given him. That by the work of the Holy Spirit, when a person's converted, they're humbled. They're brought low. They realize they're sinners. 
and they realize they're nothing. And they realize even when they come into the community of believers that, that the, the glory of the church is not in working out who's going to be the boss. That, that the glory of our communities is that we serve one another, that we humble ourselves before one another, we prefer one another over us, and we put away things like selfish ambition. We put away things like those desires that we have where we just want to impress someone. So, so let me be provocative again and leave some questions for Mike and Joel, which I'm sure they'll answer again. And these ones come from J.C. Ryle. He says, then, wh why do Christians waste their strength in contending against their brethren instead of contending against sin and the devil? And, and then he asks another question. He says, how often do men think lightly of schism? How is it that we think it is a small thing to multiply sects, to multiply parties and multiply denominations? Well, I'd like to put it that we need to think rather than denominationally or ecumenically. We need to focus on unity in our local churches in the first place. Now, now lastly and in closing, uh, we benefit and the world benefits when we're united. L let me look at how we're benefited first. Uh, benefit for us is good. If you read Psalm 133, for instance, you'd know it's good because it starts off with these words. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We know these words well, don't we? But then we also know the next bit because it's like oil being poured onto this bloke Aaron and it goes into his beard and all the way down to his feet. Now, I'm not a fan of beards. It's very itchy uh, and, and sweat can collect around beards. And, and I'm not a real fan of oily hair and oil going all around my body either. And so I cannot explain exactly how pleasant or how good it is. But, 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 but if you are from the Middle East, if you're like this, you know, like Shadi or Ray, you know, you're, you're probably sitting there and he goes, I know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> this is yum. I really love it. And, but, 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 if you come to, but if you come to Jesus' prayer, I think Jesus makes it clear in terms that perhaps a Westerner could understand better. And in verse 21, he teaches us that, that when he gives us his glory, or, or I think it's verse 22, actually, let me just check that. Verse 22, when he says, and the glory which you gave me, when he's speaking of that, he's saying that he's given us his glory that we might experience. We might experience something of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, now, we can talk about oneness at our morning teas and at our lunch breaks. And we can have someone like me come and talk to you about oneness and uni unity. We can read about it in our devotions. But there's nothing like being in the middle of it. There's nothing like being in the middle of the relationship between the Father and the Son. A and what Jesus is saying is, when you as a church, when you as a local community are in unity, it's like experiencing. It's like being part of the relationship that the Father has with the Son. Let, let me read verse 22 again. Wonderful words. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. This is not head knowledge. This is an aspect of Christianity that can only be understood when you are in fellowship. Bible colleges don't have a subject on this. 
you can go to as many conferences and as many camps as you want and no one will communicate this experience to you unless you are committed to being one with your fellow brothers and sisters. And so we benefit from unity when we are united around the word which Jesus has given us and when we are united in love for one another. But Jesus makes it very clear that the world benefits as well in his prayer. And in his prayer, he says that uh, the world gets at least two benefits. And the first benefit is that when the world sees unity in the church, they will believe that Jesus is truly sent by God. They will understand that Jesus was sent uh, not uh, as a man deciding to just go off on his own, but that he actually was uh, sent uh, from God to reveal God to man. Now, now, I know there are people who would come to us and say that Jesus is a myth, or that Jesus is just a man, or that he was just a good teacher, uh, or that he was something or the other, but he's not God and man. Well, I, I think what they're saying in verse 21, what Jesus uh, is praying in verse 21, is that when the world, the hostile world, sees you and I in unity, they say there must be something supernatural to this. There must be something special about this. Uh, and then they suddenly have to face up to the fact that Jesus is not just a myth. Because look at the change it's made in these people's lives. And when a hostile world is asking to themselves, how can we know that God sent his son to save sinners? Well, when they see our unity, when they see us loving one another, when they see us agreeing on the truths of the scripture, well, they know this had to be something special. This had to be a supernatural work, that God has sent Jesus to save a people and when I look at these people, their lives have changed so much. It's so obvious it must be true. Let, let me read verse 21 to us again. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a quite an unusual evangelistic tract. It's really a very simple church growth model, isn't it? It's not the type that you get from Harvard marketing courses. It's simple. We need to love one another. We need to be agreed in the truth of the Bible. Now, the second benefit that the world gets is that when a hostile world looks upon us, when a world that has rejected God looks upon us, they will see that God loves us like he loves his son, Jesus. How can a believer know that God loves me. Uh, he cannot do surgery, look inside and say, oh yeah, I see love there. Uh, he, he needs to have something tangible that he can hang his hat on and say, yep, I can see God loves this person. Well, uh, the passage is telling us that he can know that God loves us when he sees God's love operating in us. Uh, uh, when he sees us loving one another, let me read verse 23 again. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Uh, when we are united in love, we prove that God loves us. Uh, we're not loved by God because we're so lovable. Uh, I think each one of us, if we were honest, would say we're ugly. Uh, we're not lovable. 
God loves us because of Jesus, doesn't he? And God's love for Jesus becomes ours because we're in him. We never earn anything. But then this unconditional love is put into us, is what his prayer says. And, and what he prays for, he said, by the Holy Spirit, even when we grate one another, this love which is put in us uh, allows us to love each other because we know we're in Jesus. We can love the unlovely. We, we can love when we don't get love back. Uh, we, we can love because the Father drives this love in and through us to love one another. Verse 26, And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now the way of the world, as I've said a couple of times already, and let me finish off with a few things, is, is division. Uh, those who do not know the Father and do not know the Son are alienated and separated from God. A and it's an infectious disease, the separation from God, because not only are they separated from God, but then it starts to flow out into the, all their relationships and they become somehow separated from people in time and in their uh, relationships, whether it be close or far. Families, workplaces, political parties, footy clubs, the whole lot of them we can read in the news every day are being torn apart all the time. This is evidence of being alienated from God. Well, how can the world know that Jesus loves his people? H how can they know this? Well, it's when they see a reflection of this love and unity within his people. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, when I looked at the works of Thomas Aquinas, when I looked at the works of Martin Luther, when I looked at Thomas Kempis, Athanasius, when I looked at even others, he says, it's amazing there was a oneness coming through in their writings. Different places, different countries, different times, and different writings. And he looked at them, and yes, they had some differences, but it was quite amazing, he says, that despite all these differences in time and location, they came to one truth. And the world can observe this spiritual unity. It's not an organizational unity. It's not a denominational unity. But it's a unity that can be observed. They can see it, and they can put their finger on it. Carson puts it this way, and I do... I uh, have to quote Carson, we're at a Reformed Baptist Church group. We do not achieve unity by enthusiastically hunting for the lowest common theological denominator, but rather its common adherence to apostolic truth. It is love for one another that is self-sacrificing. And through our unity, we will prove that we have seen and appreciated the glory of God. This is how we will honor God. This is how we bring man's attention to God. And this is how we benefit the world. Let us pray.